Hi, Sworn listeners. My name is Ben Kieberich, and I was one of the producers for iHeartMedia and Tenderfoot TV's Monster Series. I'm here to announce a brand new show called Algorithm. It's a really wild true crime podcast about a journalist who creates an algorithm to detect serial killers. And it's an investigation into the cold cases he uncovered. Anyways, here's episode one. If you enjoy it, be sure to search for Algorithm on your favorite podcatcher. That's Algorithm, A-L-G-O-R-I-T-H-M. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the authors and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This series contains discussions of violence and sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Whether we want to or not, we're constantly creating records of our lives. Phone calls, emails, even credit card purchases can be used to pinpoint where we were at a certain time. When we touch a doorknob, the oil from our hand leaves fingerprints and our skin sheds DNA. And if we drive by a security camera, our license plate can be scanned and entered into a database. But despite all of this information we're creating, all of this power that we're giving the government and police, the United States isn't getting better at solving serious crimes like homicide. In fact, we're getting worse. 90% of murders were solved in 1965. Today, that number has dropped dramatically. One of every three murders goes unsolved. One reporter found those stats unacceptable. Every day in America, people die who did not need to die because every solved murder reduces the occurrence of murder. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, this is Algorithm. And I'm Ben Kiebrick. Just to introduce myself really quick, normally I don't host podcasts. I'm a producer, which means I normally just do stuff behind the scenes, research, writing, setting up interviews. Almost a year ago now, I was working on another show called Monster DC Sniper when I got an email from a friend. It was a link to a story about the murder of this young woman named Africa Hardy. The story was fascinating. It seemed to flip everything I knew about crime on its head. Because it wasn't just a story about trying to solve a murder. It was also a story about what could have been done to prevent the murder in the first place. And there were aspects of the case that were still unclear. But if they checked out, then they could fundamentally change the way homicides are investigated in the United States and maybe all around the world. Obviously, I was intrigued. But at the time, I was busy working on the DC Sniper podcast, so I put it on the back burner. I tried to just forget about it, but I couldn't. I'd find myself on my phone late at night searching for articles about Africa's case when I should have been sleeping. And I was frustrated because I had big questions about the murder investigation that it seemed like no one was asking. Eventually, I realized my curiosity wasn't going away. If I wanted these answers, I was going to have to find them myself. I decided to start researching the case in my spare time and documenting things as I went. But before I began, I wanted to reach out to Africa's mom, Lori Townsend. Hello. Hi, Lori. Yes. Hey, 
It's been. Is now still a good time? Yes, it is. I think I wanted her blessing to embark on this project, to make sure I wasn't just opening up old wounds. If this was in person, I'd see if you had a water to drink. Do you have something like that around? I do. I have a beverage. Grape juice. <laughs> Grape juice. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't just want to write a story about why Africa's case is so important that treated her solely as a victim or crime statistic. I wanted to learn more about who Africa was. And how would you describe Africa? Just beautiful. She, she really was beautiful. And I'm not just saying that because she's my daughter. <laughs> but she was beautiful. She had a very bright smile. My daughter was mixed with African-American and um, Caucasian. So she had this tight curly hair. And her smile just, <sighs> she radiated with that smile. Is there like a particular memory that stands out when you think back about her? Everything. Um, she was sassy when she was little. She always used to try to bully her older brother. <laughs> <laughs> she would put her hands on her hips and say, I'm not considering you. <laughs> I'm not considering you? <laughs> yeah, she was like one or two when she used to tell him that all the time. <laughs> she loved Disney movies. Hmm. Like Toy Story was one of her favorites. You know, Woody and Buzz. Was she one of those people that knows the words to all of the songs? Yeah, she could hear a song once and pick it up and never leave you alone about it. She would sing it until <laughs> <laughs> you told her, please stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was my best friend. She really was. We went through so much together, so many odd things that mother and daughter don't usually go through. When you say, like, going through odd stuff, do you have a, an example? Um, I was in an abusive relationship. My daughter was there with me. She helped me get out of it. We were homeless. We, we lived in hotels together. You know, I wasn't financially capable of taking care of my children. Lori was a young mother trying to rebuild her life. And she felt she couldn't provide Africa or her son the stability they needed. But she didn't want to put them in foster care either. Instead of losing my children to the system, I placed them where I would be a part of their growing up and where I knew they would be safe. Lori enrolled her kids in Mooseheart, a charity-run boarding school west of Chicago. And then she worked to get both feet back on the ground Lori started a new life in the suburbs of Denver, and once things felt stable, she brought her kids out there. As a teen, Africa had plans to go to college and study to become an audio engineer or maybe a nurse. But when Africa graduated from high school, Lori was working at a 7-Eleven and struggling financially, and Africa wasn't sure she could afford tuition. As she tried to figure out next steps, Africa decided to move back to Chicago, where she still had a lot of family. June 8, 2014, she uh, went back to Chicago. She went back with my ex-husband. She was 19, so it's not like she was a little kid or anything like that, but her cousin uh, wanted to get her a job at like the post office. I don't know what happened with that. Exactly why she moved is unclear. Lori says she was 19 and looking for independence. 
Other relatives wonder whether she was trying to avoid putting financial strain on her mom. Regardless, Chicago was expensive but exciting. And there were so many possibilities, so many things to do, people to meet. It was a bigger city than what she was used to out here in Denver. It was hard to get around. You know, she didn't have a car. So, you know, getting on the bus was, you know, a little scary for her. But she was trying to figure things out for herself out there. Was that scary for you or did you feel like she could handle it? It was definitely scary, not being close enough to know exactly what's really going on. So it was definitely hard. When we did talk, she was okay. And, you know, she had these two friends and she was going out to eat in nice places and she had nice clothes. I had no idea anything was going on. When I think back now, I wonder, maybe I could have prevented this. When we were talking and she was telling me where she was going out to eat or whatever, it never registered in my mind. I still beat myself up. Why didn't that register to me that maybe she was throwing me signs? Don't think that you know everything about your child because there's something that they're not telling you. They're either scared to tell you or they're ashamed to tell you. If I knew that this was going on, I would have stopped it. I would have went out there and brought my child back home. Do you remember the last interaction you had with Africa? It was through Facebook. She had sent me two pictures, and she said she was getting fat. And I said, no, you're not. And then I got off of work on Thursday, and I thought I had misplaced my phone. So I had messaged her through Facebook and told her, I think I may have lost my phone, so if you need me, message me on Facebook. That was Thursday night going into Friday. I didn't hear anything back on her on Friday. Then the following day is when I found out. It was the weekend of my fiance's birthday. So we had went out to eat earlier that day and we were just at home flushing the walking dead. I received a message from my ex-husband's girlfriend. She messaged me on Facebook and she said, you need to call Tasha, it's about Africa. I just thought Africa might be trying to contact me through Tasha to that's her cousin. And so I didn't really pay any attention to it. And she messaged me back about 10 minutes later. She said, you really need to call in regards to Africa. So I called Tasha, said, hey, how you doing? She said, we were up at the coroner's office. We had to identify Africa's body. Nothing she said hit my brain. I'm like, the coroner, for what? And she said, Lori, we had to identify Africa's body. She said my daughter's name, and it hit me, and I blacked out. When I came to, I just looked up at my fiance and said, Africa is dead. Tasha called me back 
and she told me what happened and um it, it just it, it was unreal to me she was trying to give me details and phone numbers that I had to call I had to contact the leading detective on the case Detective Ford Detective Ford informed me that I'd probably hear some things about my child that I don't want to believe but to know that it was true on Friday October 17th 2014 Lori was waiting for a response to the message she had sent her daughter, Africa. But Africa had already left Chicago. In fact, she'd already left Illinois. She was 45 miles southeast in Indiana, living a life that she had never told her mom about. She'd gone to meet up with a man who she'd only spoken to online. Originally, she was going to meet him earlier in the day, but he'd push things back because he said he couldn't find a babysitter. Africa knew it was risky to meet strangers from the internet and she wanted to be safe. So she let her friend Shamika know where she was and what she was doing and then texted her at 5.13 when she met up with the man. Shamika was expecting another text from her when things wrapped up. But hours passed and the second text never came. So Shamika texted Africa's phone to check in. After a delay, she got a response, but the message seemed strange. She didn't think it sounded like something Africa would write. Shamika started to worry that something was wrong, so she tried calling Africa, but she couldn't get through. Shamika kept calling over and over, but Africa wasn't picking up. So Shamika called another friend, Eduardo, and they drove out to investigate. They arrived at the address. It was a Motel 6 just off Interstate 94. Eduardo and Chimika found Africa's room and knocked on the door, but no one answered. So they got someone from the motel to let them in. They didn't see anyone inside the motel room, but the shower was running. They called out to whoever was there but got no response. As they walked into the room, they saw the bed was at a strange angle. One of Africa's shoes, a platform stiletto, was lying on its side. They saw a shirt button on the floor, a broken fingernail, and a torn condom wrapper. They crept slowly toward the bathroom and knocked on the door, but again, there was no response. Maybe someone had just left the shower running. So they cracked the door open. Shamika screamed and ran out of the room. Africa Hardy was lying in the tub, the shower water beating down on her. There was a thin red bruise going all the way around her neck. Just above that ligature mark, detectives noticed that Africa had a tattoo. It was a Bible verse. It read, No weapon that is formed against me shall prosper. Detective Ford informed me that I'd probably hear some things about my child that I don't want to believe, but to know that it was true. She was a escort, prostituting, however you want to word it. Yeah. Definitely something you don't want to know about your 19-year-old beautiful child who could have had anything, done anything that she wanted 
Detective Ford had learned that Africa was working as a call girl. And that was how Africa came into contact with the man she met at the motel. He was a client. I can definitely 100% say that my children were not raised that way. But my children know struggle, and they know how to overcome struggle. And maybe at that time, Africa may have thought that was a way to overcome struggle. I don't know. I think a lot of it has to do with the older female that she befriended. Shamika was 26 when she met my daughter. My daughter was 19. And I think she kind of primed and propped Africa. You know, the new girl on the block, she's beautiful, and we're going to make some money off of her. Hmm. Still to this day, I don't know why she decided to do what she did. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'll never get that answer. Did you ever talk to that friend? Yeah, so I did speak with her like one time. We were on the phone for about a good hour. And she mentioned that Africa thought, hey, it's fast money, quick money, easy money. That Africa wanted to come back to Denver. She wanted, you know, to help take care of her mom. So I'm going to assume that that's why, you know, it happened. Yeah. You know, it's hard to put myself in your shoes, but I imagine that that's kind of confusing to hear because in some ways it's like, you know, that's great thing. She wants to to help you, but then it's also like hard because it's, you know, like kind of connects you to it or something like that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah. Like I, I feel guilty. I mean, I feel guilty about the whole scenario, but the part that she wanted to help me, you know, since Africa was little, I guess she's always looked up to me. And I have little letters and notes that she write me. And she said, when I get famous, I'm not going to have to worry about anything anymore. And I think in her mind, you know, she thought that she really had to take care of me because now that she was grown, it was her turn. You know, mother takes care of child. No child has to take care of mother. It was just something in her that she thought she wanted to do. To me, that speaks to, you know, that you guys were close and that she wanted to help you. Yeah. When I've talked to people, lots of people talk about guilt, even in situations where it doesn't really make sense. I think that that is also sometimes just like part of losing someone you're very close to. You always kind of wonder. Yeah. There's a lot of things I wonder about. Did she beg for him to stop she begged him for her life, you know? Like, I, I, I wonder these things. Yeah. I don't know if I'm wrong for wondering that. I just want to know what my daughter's last words were. When you first reached out to me, you said something about old wounds. This is not an old wound. This is a daily wound, you know? And um, you adjust to things, but it never goes away. It never, ever goes away. Um. I was telling my girlfriend that I was getting ready to do this interview and um, her father passed away a year ago and, you know, very different situation, but she feels like other people get uncomfortable when she talks about it. Yeah. Like they don't want yeah. her to feel bad, but she wants to talk about him. Very true. Very true. Very, very, very true. People think that you're like completely broken and they don't want to say anything or mention anything. But in order for me to 
keep my daughter's voice going, I have to talk about it. Let me talk. If I have to cry, let me cry. If I want to laugh, let me laugh. The people are really like that. They're still like that with me today. So yeah, it is what it is. So before you were saying that you were like kind of curious about this, like you wanted to figure out a lot about what was going on after this happened? Yeah, I still have some curiosities and there's still some things that I think need to be done and could be done. Like I get angry because he killed my daughter and my daughter was found in a freaking hotel room, naked in a shower. Why? You know, I get angry at her. You know, why? I get angry at myself. Here's another thing. I wonder why this guy was left loose. Because here's the crazy thing about Africa's case. While Africa's death was senseless and seemed utterly random, it wasn't random. It was part of a pattern. And years earlier, a man named Thomas Hargrove had tried to warn police. He said he had evidence that a serial killer was on the loose, strangling young women in the area. Women just like Africa Hardy. So who was Thomas Hargrove? And what was his evidence? Unfortunately, Gary, Indiana is a good place to be a killer because you're probably going to get away with it. Hey, Ben. Can you hear me? I'm speaking with Thomas Hargrove over Zoom. Here, hold on one second. I have to warn my wife that I'm doing an interview. Hargrove's the guy who warned police in Indiana that they might have a serial killer on the loose. Okay, I'm bringing the dogs in. Hargrove's 64. He's got a white beard and wears thin-rimmed glasses. He wasn't the sort of guy I imagined would be investigating serial killers. So I was curious how he got into all this. I don't know where these things come from, but when I was 17, I decided I had to be a reporter, an investigative reporter. An investigative reporter is somebody looking into a truth that somebody is trying to hide. Like Africa Hardy, Hargrove grew up outside Chicago. He was inspired by journalists there who came up with a creative way to expose the city's corruption. Reporters kept hearing about the bribes that business owners had to pay city inspectors, but it was hard to prove any wrongdoing. So the journalists decided to go deep undercover. The reporters talked their editor into opening a bar. They called it the Mirage. Journalists were actually becoming barkeeps and they were running this bar for months and months. They were specifically looking for indications of public corruption and they found it. With hidden cameras running, the reporters caught inspectors taking bribes and ignoring code violations. It was a remarkable project and uh, just seemed like it was so much fun. I wanted to be like these people. After high school, Hargrove studied journalism at the University of Missouri. It's actually one of the country's top programs for journalism. At that time, in the early 70s, a new field was emerging called computer-assisted reporting. 
The idea was that reporters could use computers to analyze data like government records. Hargrove quickly grasped that computing had the potential to revolutionize investigative journalism. It allowed reporters to step back and look at issues with a wider lens. From this new perspective, sometimes previously invisible patterns would come into focus. If you didn't ask the question in exactly the right way, your program would fail, and it was very frustrating. But it was astonishing what computers could do. After college, Hargrove landed a job as a crime reporter for the Birmingham Post-Herald. Being a police reporter in the Deep South was a remarkable way to get started. I came as a Yankee and really wasn't expecting to like that experience, but I did. Hargrove loved the work experience he was getting, but being a police reporter wasn't always easy. It's one thing to think I want to write exposés about crooked politics. It's another thing to see what happens because of bad policies, poverty and desperation and violence. Hargrove kept a police scanner running all the time, even at home. If he heard a dispatch that sounded newsworthy, he'd immediately drive out to the scene of the crime. Sometimes, if he happened to be nearby, he would beat the cops there. One was at a convenience store in Hoover, Alabama. I opened the door and didn't see anybody, and then found the cashier behind the counter. The cashier had been shot. He was lying on the ground, bleeding out. He didn't say anything. He wasn't especially conscious, but he breathed his last. It is an experience to see someone die. I didn't really think when I was a teenager what it was like to cover the news. I guess I didn't realize that when you experience the news rather than just write about it, it really is a life-changing process. Hargrove's time as a crime reporter was also when he first learned about serial killers and a phenomenon called linkage blindness. In the late 1970s, the term serial killer did not exist. That was invented in the 80s. The term did not exist, but the idea that someone could kill over and over again was becoming common among Americans. At that time, just to the east of Birmingham, Atlanta was experiencing the Atlanta child murders, and those murders were not being solved. It's unusual for children to be murdered. It's very unusual for child murders to go unsolved. And there was criticism of the Atlanta Police Department for not recognizing the pattern sooner. I started attending academic symposiums that looked into the question of the Atlanta child murders. And I heard from criminologists that this is a well-known problem called linkage blindness. That when there are connected cases, often the connection is not made by police because of the nature of how homicides are investigated. If someone is murdered, a detective is assigned to the case. When another person is murdered, usually a different detective is assigned to the case. If there are commonalities to the two murders, 
Those commonalities are not recognized unless those two detectives have a conversation over the water cooler. If those killings occurred in a neighboring jurisdiction, that conversation never happens. Experts in the field were saying that most connected murders go unrecognized. The links are very rarely made. And I kept that in the back of my mind. Hargrove didn't know it yet, but this simple insight about linkage blindness, that connections between murders are often missed by police, that idea would become an obsession and completely alter the course of his life. But his next clue wouldn't come until decades later, when he was halfway across the country. Hargrove had climbed up through the ranks, and in 2004, he was living his teenage dream. He was working as an investigative reporter in Washington, D.C., and he was using the programming skills he'd learned in college to write big, data-driven stories. In 2004, I was assigned to do a really interesting story. He'd just started a piece on prostitution when he stumbled across another clue. In some cities, anti-prostitution laws are vigorously enforced. In other cities, the laws are virtually ignored. And in other cities, just the men who hire prostitutes are arrested. So it was all across the board. Who gets arrested, whether anyone gets arrested? To study this, I needed the Uniform Crime Report because prostitution is something the FBI counts. So Hargrove ordered a CD with FBI records about crime. He was planning to compare prostitution arrests between different cities when he discovered something else. Included on that CD, at no extra charge, was a file I had never heard of called the Supplemental Homicide Report. Being paid to be curious, I opened it up. And what it was was line after line of individual murders. It showed the age, race, sex of each victim. Victim is a black male, 18 years old. It had the weapon that was used. He was shot with a handgun. It had the police theory as to why the homicide occurred. The murder is thought to be due to an argument over money or property. It had the month and year and the jurisdiction. January 2000, Los Angeles, Long Beach, California. I had never seen individual crime data before. And I don't know where all these connections occur in our minds, but the first thought I had upon opening the SHR, the Supplemental Homicide Report, was could we teach a computer to identify connected cases, to find serial killings? Hargrove had a feeling that an algorithm could find patterns within that data and detect serial killers. And maybe it could even be used to detect active serial killers who had not yet been caught. This idea started Hargrove down a winding path that eventually led him to discover a trail of bodies. Bodies that he says were left behind by the man who killed Africa Hardy. But this isn't just a story investigating Africa Hardy's killer and cold cases that might be connected to him. If there's one thing that will become clear from this story, It's that Africa Hardy didn't need to die. Next time on Algorithm. 
serial killer Gary Ridgway was convicted in a court of law of murdering 48 girls and women. The question was, could we teach a computer a process that would tell us that something god-awful happened in Seattle? My editors recognized that this could be something very cool. But it's hard to commit to a project you don't know up front whether it's possible. The stereotypes about the profile of a serial killer or the profile of the victims is not really very consistent with the facts. This is really one of the most frustrating experiences of my life. Your only hope is to get Jackie to talk. I think the Gary Police Department should be looking at some of those old cases. They still may have a killer out there. Episode 2 of Algorithm is out now. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. This episode was written and produced by me, Ben Kiebrick. Algorithm is executive produced by Alex Williams, Donald Albright, and Matt Frederick. Production assistance and mixing by Eric Quintana. The music is by Makeup and Vanity Set and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Christina Dana, Miranda Hawkins, Jamie Albright, Rima El Kailai, Trevor Young, and Josh Thane for their help and notes. Hope you enjoyed episode one of Algorithm, the brand new true crime podcast from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. Episode two and three are available right now, so search for Algorithm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And subscribe to listen to episode two right now. That's Algorithm, A-L-G-O-R-I-T-H-M.